Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for friends of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Rosie Candlethal, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. Our spectacular co-host, Tim McNinch, is off this week. Rosie, here we are in the middle of Lent already. The third Sunday of Lent, to be precise, March 12, 2023, with a first reading from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. This is the story of Moses striking a rock at his staff and miraculously acquiring water for the thirsty, wandering folk of Israel. What do you want to say about this story? I could potentially say a lot about this story of Moses and water from the rock in Exodus 17. I mean, it has all kinds of significance in its context within the Hebrew Bible. But before I say a word about that, I kind of want to zoom out for a minute and address the liturgical framework for our scripture readings and set the story about water from the rock into the frame of Lent. Nice. So for preachers thinking about their sermons, it is critical to remember the liturgical season we're in. The readings in the Revised Common Lectionary for Year A especially have a deliberate shape and pattern in the season of Lent. And this shape and pattern goes back to how many churches have thought about Lent for centuries. It was a period of time in which the church is focused on the preparation of initiates into the Christian faith or their baptism at Easter. So the readings during Lent in Year A in particular are designed to highlight the theme of initiation into faith. And the first two Sundays of Lent, if you'll remember, explore two events in the life of Jesus, and Jesus' temptation is in the first Sunday. The second Sunday can be the transfiguration from Matthew or the reading from Nicodemus, um, which is the one that Rachel just did in the last episode. And then beginning with this Sunday and for the next three Sundays, the gospel readings take up the theme of initiation directly with the Yonan stories of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the blind man in John 9, and the raising of Lazarus in John 11. Nice. I, so that's really helpful in liturgical context. I actually didn't know any of that. Uh, <laughs> can, you, can you say a bit more? Like, how do these scriptures address initiation into Christian faith? Yeah, I did a little bit of research because I, I I think this is really year A kind of fascinated me with um with the the kind of the overarching flow of the mm. readings and so I kind of did a little bit of digging and found this out. So some historical context might be helpful for our listeners. On the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent, after the Liturgy of the Word, the early church held what was called its scrutinies of the candidates for initiation. Mm. And that word scrutiny sounds a bit strange to us today, but the scrutinies are best understood as prayers for the elect and an expression of communal support rather than maybe what it sounds like, a public examination maybe for preparedness or moral character, right? So the candidates for baptism would present themselves before the community during these weeks of Lent. And the content and inspiration for the prayers of the community came directly from these Yonan stories of the Samaritan woman at the well, the blind man, and Lazarus. And those prayers were intended to lead to the communal celebration of adult initiation to faith through baptism at Easter. Hmm. Traditionally, that baptism, that baptismal bath, took place at night during the Easter vigil in the presence of the community holding candles as they together celebrated the gift of new life through Christ. So I hope you can hear the symbols there. So water, light, and life. And you can hear the resonance with the stories of the Samaritan woman at the well, thirsty for living water, right? The man born blind who, however, can see the light of the world. And the dead man, Lazarus, who is raised to life again by his friend, Christ, the Savior. 
to recognize that deep historical and theological context in my mind, this overarching movement of the scriptures toward baptism and Easter, I think that affects the task of preaching during Lent deeply. So Rachel, I was torn. I know this podcast is called First Reading and my task is really to provide the context that would give preachers confidence preaching from the Hebrew Bible. But I think it's really difficult to do that in year A during the weeks of Lent without maybe setting the first reading more explicitly in relationship to the gospel readings as they were intended and as part of the larger work of the liturgy. No, I think that's fair. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually, that, you know, the period of Lent as a season leading up to Easter is of high importance for many of our listeners. So thinking about what you've said about the shape and pattern of the readings in year A during Lent, How would you then approach these texts from a preaching standpoint? Yeah, I really wrestled with this. So as I thought about this third week of Lent in year A, I kept coming back to the gospel reading from John 4 and the Mm -hmm. Samaritan woman at the well, the other good Samaritan, as I call her, (laughs) um, and her her being a model of adult initiation into faith. Now, this passage is full of wonderful characterization, particularly in that extraordinary dialogue between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. And I'm of the mind that when you get a text like this, you don't pass it up as a preacher. (laughs) In fact, the RCL recommended extending this reading to include the full interaction, not the kind of piecemeal stuff that we often get out of the RCL. It's John 4 verses 5 through 42. That's a long reading. We've got 37 verses. But, you know, it's a gift in the middle of Lent to remind ourselves of this woman's boldness and her courage as she interrogates Jesus at the well. I mean, she is part, if I'm pulling from our Hebrew Bible um, tradition here, she's part of a long tradition of women in the Bible who also boldly challenged God, questioned, and talked back. So Um, we've got Hagar, Sarah, Miriam, Hannah, Rachel, Mary, just to name a few. um, Like, And our podcast has sometimes taken the approach of highlighting the Hebrew Bible references in the gospel reading. And I think I'd like to propose taking that tack this week. As I said earlier, year A provides a sequence of gospel stories rooted in church tradition that highlights the theme of Christian initiation and baptism. So water, light, new life, the Samaritan woman, the blind man, and Lazarus. Now, this is what guided the RCL as it chose the first reading, the psalm, and the epistle to highlight the themes of adult initiation into faith and baptism. The themes of water, thirst, testing, and God's ability to slake our different thirst. That appears in all of our texts this week. That's awesome. That's really, that's, I'm going to have to think about this, especially in terms of year A. It makes me want to go back and re-look at the podcast we, yeah. we recorded last week because that, that just kind of changes everything. So, okay, so this is awesome. So how would you highlight the Hebrew Bible resonances within the Samaritan woman's story? Like, what do you see there? Yeah, I think there's a number of Hebrew Bible resonances which enhance our appreciation of this already amazing gospel story. So first, let's take verse four in John chapter four. John's text tells us that Jesus, quote, had to go through Samaria. Now, Samaritans are descendants of the remnant of the 10 tribes associated with the northern kingdom of Israel. We've sometimes talked about the history here, but this is kind of important. So these were the folks who were not deported when Israel fell to the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE. Tensions between Samaritans and Jewish returnees from the Babylonian exile, this is two centuries later in the 6th century when they're returning, 
these conflicts stemmed from different claims to the land, different claims to identity. Who was the Fair. true remnant of Israel, the returnees or the folks that were remained in the land since the 8th century, right? Fair. And also from conflicts about rebuilding the temple. And we know this from Ezra and Nehemiah, right? So there was a history of tension between Jews and Samaritans. Although the main route between Judea and Galilee ran through Samaria, many Jews during the time of Jesus would take the alternate route hmm. through the Jordan Valley just to avoid contact with Samaritans. Jesus goes against that common Jewish convention by choosing the direct route through Samaria. John says he has to go through there, right? So the yeah. gospel writer plays with biblical conventions here. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, we also know Wells are often places in the tradition where men and women meet and a marriage ensues, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the, I don't know, the, the meet cute here is <laughs> at the well, right? The stories of Rebecca and Isaac, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah, all involve a meeting at a well, yeah. right? So the story of the Samaritan woman plays with that trope. It plays with this biblical convention using a common formula that listeners or readers would recognize to play with this theme of thirst and satisfaction and subverting some of those expectations in more ways than one. Nah. <laughs> so are you like intentionally playing here with that, the modern idiom of being thirsty, like openly lusty or quote unquote thirsty? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So uh, it's a little creepy, but yeah, I think there's something going on there, right? I mean, the gospel writer is certainly playing with multiple meanings of thirst. Yeah, there's a thirst for water here, right? So the setting is Jesus is physically thirsty. He's sitting at the well at noonday when it is hot. And this also, this noonday thing um, is a bit of a contrast to Nicodemus in the chapter right before who comes at night, right? So we've got in the next chapter, the Samaritan woman in the bright of noonday. Yeah. But John's Jesus intentionally plays with literal and spiritual meanings when he says that anyone who drinks from this well, the one that they're sitting at, will get thirsty again. But Jesus, he's got something called living water, like a <laughs> spring that will gush up to eternal life. And there's wordplay here, right? So it can be read literally as spring water, as opposed to maybe water from a cistern or water from a well, or metaphorically as the water of life. And that's Found certainly what this um, conversation begins to edge towards. So yeah. in any case, the woman responds enthusiastically. Like she says, I, I want that. Give me this water so I don't have to come here every day to draw. Yeah. And she doesn't quite understand what Jesus is getting at. There is more going on here with the theme of thirst, right? Because Jesus yeah. is doing a couple of things. This is, um, and I'm going to use the word, I think it's a seduction. Sure. There's a real back and forth between these two. They are deeply and mutually engaged in this conversation. There's a thirst for relationship Same. underlying Jesus's comment about the Samaritan woman's five previous husbands and the one she's currently with not being her husband. There's the thirst for knowledge that the woman immediately displays when she asks Jesus who she thinks now is probably a prophet because he somehow knows all about her relationship history. And then, so she's like, let me take you up on this. Can you tell me the difference between Jews and Samaritans and where they worship? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? So there's that thirst for knowledge there. And then thirst, the way that we've been talking about it as a sexual subtext mm -hmm. between Jesus and this woman is also not so subtly underscored yeah. when the disciples return and they marvel <laughs> over finding him talking alone to this local woman. 
the disciples don't understand at all what is happening, but the kind of subtext is, mm, what is going on? <laughs> They're trying to get Jesus to eat the bread they brought him while this woman leaves and heads toward the city to share her encounter with Jesus as an apostle would asking others, Hey, could this guy really be the Messiah? Mm. That That's amazing. I, I just like, I'm just sitting here enjoying this moment because I'm like, <laughs> I did like when you started talking about thirsty, I was like, oh gosh, I hope Rosie knows that that's an idiom. And then you just yes. like beautifully brought it in in a way that actually works really well. And I don't know, preachers, if you could do that in your setting, like if your kind of fence would be okay with it, but it's an, it's really a wonderful way to highlight the multiple layers of what's going on in this text. I mean, even that, like this is one of the settings of one of the famous I am statements in John. So there's another layer there, right? Right, exactly. And that, just as you said, is another important Hebrew Bible reference, right? So the woman says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Now you might miss the impact in Jesus' next response because the NRSV's English translation adds a pronoun he to make it read logically. And so it reads in the NRSV, Jesus says, I am he. But in John chapter 4, 26, Jesus simply informs the woman, I am. And mm. in Greek, that's ego eimi, right? So Jesus's response really can only be understood in its Hebrew Bible context mm. by using that formula, I am, no pronoun, ego eimi, Jesus makes a direct connection to the divine name as it was revealed in Exodus 3.14 to Moses when yeah. Adonai says, I am who I am, right? So identifying himself as not only the Messiah, but God's own yeah. self standing with this woman at the well. And it is an astounding statement, but one which is not wasted on the Samaritan woman. Because if you notice, the next thing she does is she is off flying toward yeah. the city and she leaves her water jar there. Uh-huh. So she knows she has just had a pretty incredible encounter with possibly God's self. Uh, uh, it's nuts. Uh, again, this is one of those texts I said last week that I've done so many times that it's like, okay, what's new in it? But I feel like it's just coming to life in the way you're describing it. So so to sum up, your preaching angle is that seeing this Samaritan woman is really a model of faith. And you see that by noticing the Hebrew Bible resonances in the passage itself. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I really, I hope preachers don't miss out on the gift of year A during Lent. Right. Because it creates this kind of scaffolding of themes and symbols to the scripture that point the whole congregation to remembering together our gifts of our baptism at Easter. So water and light and new life. And I'd love to see preaching that takes up the Samaritan woman as a genuine part of our shared spiritual heritage. She is a part of a long line of powerful female ancestors that point us both backwards and forwards through time yeah. toward a longer tradition of women who talked back to God hey. and found in that interaction real conversation, real conversion. Oh, amen. Amen, preacher. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, but before before we kind of end on that high note, let's take it down. Um, any preaching to false you want to highlight? Right. Okay, so yes, please. There's a big one, <laughs> right? Preachers, be careful of painting the Samaritan woman with a broad brush as a sinner or a prostitute or something negative to do with her sexuality, because I have heard her labeled all kinds of awful things because of the reference to her five husbands and the six that's not her own. But we really do not know this woman's story. We don't know if her previous husbands had died 
or if her previous husbands had divorced her, which was not difficult to do, especially if she was unable to have children. And as you notice in this passage, there's no mention at all of her children. So it's possible that that might have had something to do with her history. In any case, life for a woman alone without a male protector or provider often meant in this culture, destitution, vulnerability, and lots worse, right? We don't know this woman's story. Jesus doesn't shame her. Jesus engages her. The woman isn't embarrassed that Jesus knows her history. And in fact, it emboldens her to ask more questions. She even leads with her history when she heads back to the city, leaving her water jar at the well. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He can't be the Christ, could he? That's the question she asks in verse 29. John depicts her as a model disciple who quickly perceives who Jesus is, draws others to experience Christ through her witness, and in contrast to Jesus's male disciples, who seem slow and uncomprehending, in contrast to her quick wit and intelligence. So please, preachers, I know it's tempting to try to draw this woman as sinful, maybe especially during Lent. Don't do it. It's not warranted by the context of a story, and it's not what Jesus did. You and your congregation deserve to see her as a rich and surprising and captivating model of discipleship, as the Yonan gospel clearly intended. Well, I think that was a fantastic way to deal with that text, uh, Rosie, and I hope preachers take you up on it. Well, preachers and friends, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much, Rosie. Remember, friends, all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources. And now, your very own First Reading swag on the merchandise page. If you're on Facebook, you can also find us there and give us some feedback in the comments. A special thank you to those who generously choose to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Candlethal. Happy preaching! 